When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first thing you have to do as a musician is not think about music. You have to ask yourself, who am I? What is my relationship to the society that I live in? How can I be honest with myself to answer that very basic question? Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. I am your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, welcome back from being interviewee for a week. Now that you're back in the interviewer's chair, who did we hear you talking to in this week's cold open? You know, Karen, it's good to be back. You're <laughs> such a terrifying, you know, interviewer. <laughs> you're so cruel with your questions. <laughs> Isaac's canceled now in the wake of our working episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Anyway, this week we're listening to my interviewer with composer, band leader, pianist, and record label impresario Fabian Almazan. And I was really excited to talk to Fabian because he, as both a uh, band leader and as the head of his own record label, is really concerned with the environment. And I wanted to talk to him about ways that he embeds environmentalism into his creative process as a composer and as a record label honcho. I'm so excited to hear this interview, but first, I believe that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members this week. What will they hear? Yeah, so we will be talking about Almazan's experience as a longtime collaborator with Terrence Blanchard, who is probably most famous for scoring the films of Spike Lee, and, and Fabian plays with him a lot. And we're also going to talk about Fabian's own experiences as a film composer and what it's like to translate a music that is so free, like his jazz, into a form as rigorous and precise as a film score. That sounds fascinating, and it is. fortunately, it is incredibly easy to listen to it by subscribing to Slate Plus. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like the Culture Gap Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Fabian Almazan. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Fabian Almazan, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you do a lot of different things. You're a band leader. You play with other artists. You compose 
you run your own record label, uh, you, you had a small role in one of my favorite TV shows of all time, HBO's Treme. So, so let me just uh, start with, is there a typical day for you? And uh, if so, what is that typical day like? No, that's the simple answer. No, <laughs> there is no, especially uh, recently becoming a father during the pandemic. Mm. I compose music usually now at midnight um, until I fall asleep, and then he wakes up promptly at five a.m. So, wow, a lot of ballads. Are you someone who like? Are you like singing little scraps of melody into your voice memo to use later when it when it hits you or or how does inspiration, I guess, play a role in, in your songwriting process? Typically, I think what happens for me is when I'm, I'm constantly uh, seeking out what would be new music for me, just something that, that hits me in a certain way that I don't initially understand. I think I, I have a very analytical approach uh, to music. Whenever I hear something that catches my attention... I'll really try to investigate it in almost like a like a scientific method of just put it under the microscope and really try to understand not necessarily how the music works or, or or the architecture of it, but just to find what the ingredient in that music was that had such a profound impact on me. And once I think I've found that ingredient, then I take that and that that's the source for the inspiration of whatever I'm going to write. That's a almost perfect segue for the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. I was wondering if we could talk about the songwriting process uh, on a couple of songs from your latest album, This Land Abounds With Life, which is an album I've been you know, mainlining to prepare for this interview and really loving. So um, can we maybe talk about the Everglades or Everglades sure. the, a, a bit? What, what was the origin point of that song or what was the thing you were investigating that led to the melodies and the, the structure of the piece? Well, that's funny because <laughs> that's one of the few pieces that I didn't take the approach that I just described. That one well, you was... know, there's no there's no rules, right? There's no set approach yeah, that people yeah. use for anything. So that's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, that one, uh, I was born in Cuba, but I grew up in Florida. Uh, I grew up fairly close to the Everglades. I lived in, in Kendall in Miami. And I've always been uh, very drawn to nature. And I find it heartbreaking what has happened to the Everglades over the course of my lifetime, I, I was trying to uh, make a portrait of the Everglades uh, sonically. That, that's what I was trying to do. Did you start with that idea, I'm going to make a portrait of the Everglades, and then you start to kind of develop the song? Or did you have some melodic ideas already and think, oh, these would work for a portrait of the Everglades? Uh, maybe that's a chicken and an egg question, but which came first for you? I can actually answer it with this one because this composition for me is very different um, because the the inspiration, uh, you know, you have absolute music and programmatic music. And, uh, and just to make it really clear, what do you mean by absolute music versus programmatic music? Well, um, I think a good example of absolute music is somebody like Brahms, uh, who his music is extremely moving to me, uh, but he never wrote about anything. He wrote music for music's sake. you have somebody like Debussy and he writes program music programmatic music which he's uh, he's trying to depict 
a certain scene on a beach or overtly love what love sounds like. Yeah, the Everglades was not absolute music. Uh, I was just very much uh, moved by the Everglades. I had recently visited my parents in Florida, and I went there. Um, but the main melody uh, is built over F-sharp uh, tonality. So can I ask, how do you get from, I'm, I'm making a portrait of the Everglades in, in sound, to that chord structure? Is it that you're, you know, closing your eyes and thinking of what the Everglades looks like and then putting your hands on the piano? Or, you know, like what, how did you get from point A to point maybe B or C in, in that part of the songwriting process? Honestly, I think to answer that question would borderline the territory of of religion and mm. uh you know euphoria and that sort of thing which is very difficult to define i don't pretend to know any of those answers got it but what i'm relying on is all my years of analyzing different music of listening to music and just one of the things that i tell my students is that, that the, the first thing you have to do as a musician is not think about music you have to you have to self-examine you have to ask yourself who am I? What is my relationship to the society that I live in? What are the things that I want to contribute? Uh, it's just, who am I? How can I be honest with myself to answer that very basic question? Uh, and I, throughout my time with music, that's what I've tried to do, to really stay true to myself and not deviate from any direction based on you know, perceived uh, criticisms, whether they come exterior or interior. So with, with that piece with the Everglades, I, it is a poignant piece and it's a multi-movement piece. You know, recently I, I've started working on a project called the Sacrifice Zones, which uh, Sacrifice Zones are scattered throughout the world and it's basically uh, regions populated by black, brown, and indigenous people for the most part, the dis disenfranchised. And then you have either governments or industries coming in there and really basically raping the land and just sucking all the profit from it, meanwhile creating a lot of pollution and completely disregarding the people that live in these communities. And that's what's happened in the Everglades. Uh, in the Everglades, the Miccosukee tribe and the Seminole tribe have inhabited those lands for over a hundred years. And right now, the Burnett Oil Company is trying to drill oil in that pristine land of Big Cypress, which is a protected reserve. But I just I have very strong feelings uh, for the subject matter in the Everglades. And when it's something like that, when I'm writing a piece of music that's so close to my heart, as far as the inspiration behind it, that's when I really try to let go of of me as a musician and try to tap in of me as a person on a, on a more basic universal level, my sort of raw emotions and just try to rely on all of my investigative research as a composer 
analyzing music that it'll just kind of transcendentally come through me. That's such a great answer, you know, because I do think in, in a lot of our creative endeavors, you know, there's like the generative phase, which is often about inspiration and, you know, going with the flow, following it, seeing what comes out. And then there's sort of often a later phase where you have to revise it or you have to maybe bring the inner critic or the inner musician back to kind of look at it and, and stuff like that. Um, what was your revision process like on this song? Or is revising not a thing you really think about? Or, or you know, how, how, do you, how do you approach revision? I think specifically when you have musicians that improvise over written music, that will very much often happen on the bandstand. Got it. Like uh, like Duke Ellington and people from his era, they would bring a sort of a sketch to the big band, and then based on what happens when they're playing through the music, then they tweak it. And that's, I think, what happened with the Everglades, because I've played it in different instrumentations, and little by little I, I, I took into account the musicians that I'm playing with on how to craft the overall form and the more improvised sections of the piece, how that's going to take shape. The compositional part of it itself was more fragmented just because of my life, because you know I, I was traveling a lot and in different places and performing. But I think with that composition specifically, it, it worked because there's different movements. Right. Did you write those movements in the order they occur in the song itself? Yeah, and I, it's funny that you picked that piece because it's one of the few that I can remember clearly. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote the, the first part, uh, which is the more peaceful part of it. I wrote that first. And then there's a, a middle section that picks up a lot in intensity. And that's when I'm thinking about all of the sort of malignant things that have happened to the Everglades as far as pollution and what we were speaking about in terms of sacrifice zones. So to move on to another song from the album, um, Songs of the Forgot, which among other things layers uh, field recordings and I guess samples in among the, the music of your trio as well. So it starts with this bird song and I, and I think I remember reading somewhere that the bird song is actually the origin of the piece. So the, the field recordings uh, for, that I used in Songs of the Forgotten are from the western side of Cuba. I'm trying to remember because there were four different sites that I went to. And I think it was from Los Viñales, which is the part of Cuba where it's the main source of all the tobacco leaves that, that uh, the highly sought after Cuban cigars are. But there, there's also a wilderness area and that, that's where I recorded it. So how did the song grow out of those field recordings you were doing in Cuba? Well, that um, uh, that uh, song I I found in the piano that was in the very high register. It was uh, F sharp, D sharp, C sharp, B to A sharp very quickly. I, I slowed down the recording. Mm. So that established the tonality. That's what I was having in the in the treble clef in the higher register. 
and and then um, you know I like for my music to kind of not be too well defined for people because it's it's like medicine for people and everybody needs a different medicine. Um, but for me specifically, it's twofold. The reference to the forgotten in the title. The the first one is for just uh, all life on Earth. I'm a naturalist and I, I guess a hippie. <laughs> if you haven't figured it out by now. Um, Currently, right now, as we speak, we're going through the sixth uh, mass extinction that the planet has gone through, and I think the majority of people in the world don't don't realize that. So we've forgotten our neighbors, you know, our all life on Earth. We all depend on each other. And then the other side of the coin of who is the forgotten uh, in that piece, I feel it's. It's very sad what has happened in Cuba in terms of the Cuban citizen losing uh, their their rights. Uh, there's a lot of human rights violations that happen every day there that I guess has been normalized as time has gone by. Um, there were some protests last year that I think the world caught a, a brief glimpse of, of what's going on in Cuba, but immediately the Cuban government squashed it and nobody has spoken about it uh, since. And, you know, I, I was separated from my family for two decades. I wasn't able to see my, my family until I returned to Cuba 23 years after I had left as a child. And that's very much because of the politics in Cuba. My mom, among other things, was one of the translators for Fidel Castro. And when we left Cuba, uh, that complicated things quite a lot. It made it uh, not the safest thing for my family to ever step foot in Cuba. Luckily, I was able to go and everything was fine. Um, you know, and Cuba's not the only place. There's a lot of places throughout the world where um, the people are ruled with an iron uh, fist. And I'm, by no means am I saying that the United States is perfect. Not even right. close. <laughs> but uh, there are a lot of uh, forgotten beings uh, throughout the world. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Fabian Amazon. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Fabian Amazon. A social consciousness and social engagement is so deeply a part of your creative process, it seems to me. And, and it is for me, too, as a writer. Uh, I've always felt like I'm lucky in that I, as a writer, I get to use like actual text. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, have, I have words with which to express this. And I, I'm just sort of interested in, in you know, you, you use music. You know, you're, you don't, you're, you just said that you're not discursive in your work. You know, you don't want to necessarily control the meaning that someone else takes from it. And yet social engagement is also such a deep part of your process. So I'm just sort of interested in how you see the interplay of those, of how you see sort of 
allowing your politics to inform your music and, and, and maybe the listener's response as well. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't believe myself to be politically driven. I'm just a human being, and I feel like I'm seeing injustices happen. And I very much live by uh, Joseph Campbell's mantra of follow your bliss. And I, that's what I try to do as, as a human being and as an artist. I might have to come down to reality a little more now that I'm a father. <laughs> but that's what I try to do as an artist, not really think about anything other than that sort of light, that source that we all have inside of us. And I try to be driven by that. Right. You know, and, and, and I guess one way in which the relationship between human beings and the earth is reflected in your work is actually in the record label that you founded in biophilia. Um, can you tell our listeners who might not be familiar with the record label about, uh, what it is and what its values are and how it works? Sure. Um, biophilia records is inspired by a term that I learned from reading EO Wilson's uh, books. Uh, biophilia means an innate attraction or love of life or other living things. I have very much considered myself a naturalist since I was a kid. I used to, uh, during lunch, I'd go to the library and just look up books on nature and, and read that. And because I was, I was a pretty lonely childhood as a, as a kid interested in classical music and jazz and frogs and trees, I just wanted to have, as an adult, a community of like-minded people. So I just I started Biophilia Records because I, I wanted to promote a community of like-minded individuals that care about music and the environment. Uh, there is no specific genre, or though the majority of the music happens to be jazz just because that's the world that I come from. Um, and we make uh, these products that have zero... I think I have one right here. Um, uh, these are called biofolios, and they have zero plastic in them. They're made entirely out of FSC-certified paper. This happens to be my album. Um, and it's origami-inspired, and it's got a, a lot of liner notes in mm. the back and the front. It's got 20 panels total and a, a download code for you to download the music. And it was very important for me that I, that I was able to eliminate things that have a, a negative impact on the environment, like plastic or, or vinyl. Um, I know a lot of uh, music fans love their vinyl, and I do as well, but you know, when I, there's no green quote unquote way of, of doing vinyl. So for that reason, um, biophilia records, we put out the, the majority of our albums in this hybrid format, which is a couple different things. It is a physical product that you can take. And then the joke that I make on gigs when I'm telling the audience about biophilias is that you can just recycle it if you hate the music. Um, but it's, it's great for the artists as well, because it is very, very challenging to, to make a living as a musician and on top of that as a jazz musician. So one of the main sources of income for, for touring bands is that they can sell merch and this is something that they can sell. Unfortunately, the, the pandemic made that basically impossible and it's been very, I'm not going to lie, it's been very challenging for the label during the pandemic for us to, to stay afloat. What I love about this is that it seems to me a, a really clear example of something we talk about on the show a lot, which is that, you know, creativity is not only about the art you make, but about the structures you create 
that allow you to make the art that you make. And it seems to me that with these biofolios, you know, that is a creative solution to a whole series of different problems. How do I create something physical that I can sell that is not destructive to the environment, that can create a revenue stream at concerts that people might actually want? Because, you know, our listeners can't see it, but it's actually a beautifully designed uh, you know, origami-inspired object with these beautiful images of birds and a lovely typeface and all of those things. So I'm curious about the creative process that led to you kind of figuring all of that out, or, or was it, did lightning strike and you were like, oh, we'll do this hybrid thing with a QR code? Well, it's funny, um, it took a year uh, to answer your question. It, oh. um, yeah, I, I, ha- I felt like we needed something that was an alternative to a CD, but I didn't quite know what it was. And just a lot of sleepless nights. But I, I remember one night, we, I came back. My wife's Australian, so we, we spent some time in Australia. We had just come back from Australia. It was the day that David Bowie died. It, it was January. But I just laid in bed awake all night. And that was one night that I can remember. A lot of ideas sort of coalesced themselves. Um, I had been doing research on how to come up with a product. And I, I was looking into pop-up books I was looking into origami. I am by no means a visual artist at all. I'm, I'm not a designer, so I had to do a lot of research, and that's why it took a year. But yeah, that day that David Bowie uh, died, that's when the labels just, it all kind of came together in my mind. I decided that we would do the biofolios, that we would collaborate with uh, nonprofits like the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, where we would volunteer with them as artists and invite the fans and... We've done a lot less of that throughout the pandemic because I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I knew that the virus spread uh, because of me. <laughs> you know, obviously you are writing the songs, you know, um, but there comes a moment where you have to bring them to the band and, and rehearse with the band. You've had a, a, a few, a couple different bands over the years, but but this latest album is with a trio um, with your uh, wife, who is also your your bassist, Linda Mahan O, oh, and the drummer Henry Cole. Um, can you tell me a bit about what your collaborative process is like with them as a as a band leader? Is there a particular way of being a band leader that 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 you have when you work with them, or how do you all work together? What's a what's a practice session like? I mean, honestly, I'm just trying to keep up with them. <laughs> they're they're both incredible musicians that I've known for a very very long time, and they they very much keep me on my toes. Uh, My wife is my hero. She is one of my favorite musicians in the world and obviously one of my favorite people. And Henry, he just sleeps, eats, and drinks drums every day. So I just have a lot of trust in them that whatever I bring in, they're going to give it 100%. And I value their opinions. You know, if they feel like something should maybe get tweaked or changed a little bit every single time, it's made sense. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I compose the majority of the music and bring it in and then, you know, we, we just play it and, and talk about it. And it's very democratic. We just, just, we all agree. Okay, let's do it this way. And we do it that way. I wanted to ask you a couple questions about improvising because, you know, uh, I find improvising very mysterious. Um, maybe this is like, so forgive me if these are the most basic simple questions about improvising you've ever heard or, or, you know, whatever, please don't be too offended. But, um, 
how do you actually learn to improvise? Is it a technique? Is it a skill? Is it a mental, spiritual discipline of clearing your head? Like, like you, I think, originally came from a classical music background, if I remember correctly. So, like, how does one learn how to improvise? You know, it's the it's basically composition. It's it to me, it's the same thing as composing, mm. just sped up, uh, dra like dramatically sped up. So it it just requires kind of the same thing as being a composer, really understanding the rules so that you know how to break them. And you know, the, it's called music theory for a reason. It's a theory. So just trying to to look at one harmony or, or the construction of a melody from as many different points of view as possible it's almost like speaking different languages like being able to call a thing in spanish or italian french just seeing all the different angles being as well informed as possible about what you're doing so when you're in that moment and everything is happening so quickly uh it doesn't feel like you have to process information with your brain you're prepared for it and hopefully whatever uh, imagination is occurring inside of you whatever you're reacting to in the moment just comes out but it, it requires a lot of preparation and in that moment when you are improvising you know when you're playing a gig and you know you're in the mid middle of a song and you're improvising with your band uh do you know what's going on in your mind during that period or are you sort of trying to just listen and respond in the in the moment or is there are you is there like a left-brained and right-brained part of you in that moment or or are you trying to shut that voice off and just play or well the absolute goal and i think this is for everyone that does this is is to not even be aware of what's happening to you're just that transcendental eye <laughs> you right. know, like just, a conduit yeah it's passing yeah through exactly you. yeah that's that's the ultimate goal it's uh it's a meditation um you want to get out of the way so that the music uh, navigates itself. Um, but to be perfectly honest, that's kind of rare for that to happen, um, especially as you get older and you've been playing music for a long time. There's a lot of difficult music that requires a lot of counting. <laughs> um, so, you know, that presents a challenge. Uh, but again, you, you hope that you've studied the music enough so that you can get to a point where you trust that all of that is going to sort of lead the way and everything will be okay. You know, we have a lot of listeners from all sorts of different creative disciplines, many of whom want to bring more freedom and spontaneity into their work, at least in the generative process. And, you know, for those of us who aren't live performing, um, if that's something they maybe struggle with, what advice do you have for them to unlocking their own freedom as artists and, and spontaneity and kind of the improvisatory spirit, even if they're not playing improvised music? I mean, I, I hate to repeat myself so many times, but... No, no, just, it's all right. Just ask yourself who you are, you know, what makes you you. If you think you know the answer, congratulations, because I don't. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I keep asking the question. Uh, there's a wonderful book that I've, I revisit from time to time called The Body Keeps the Score, mm -hmm. which uh, it's just, a, you know, about trauma and things like that. And I, I don't think there's a single human being on this planet that hasn't experienced some sort of trauma. And I, I think uh, that really not defines you, but plays a, a pretty significant role in, in who you are. So as an artist, I'm, I'm constantly trying to reflect on, on the highs and the lows of my life and, and what's going on in society. That's the first thing I would say to someone. It's just really get to know who you are. Make sure that you're doing the things you're doing because you want to because it feels good for you, because it's something that drives you, not because somebody else is doing it. 
and you're comparing yourself to that person. I mean, I know as human beings, we can't help but not to do that. That's what we do. But it shouldn't, I don't think it should be the guiding sort of force behind artistry. Um, and the other thing is just be honest with yourself. If there's certain things about the craft of being a composer or performer that uh, you're coming up short in, you know, the certain limitations that you have, be honest with yourself. Don't, don't lie to yourself. And you know deal with those things try to see how you can improve on them rather than just hoping that they'll go away right whenever there's that feeling of fear that's a good sign that that's the thing you have to you have to confront that thing that you're afraid of is is the thing that if you can be in in the same room with it and deal with it that's going to help you out Fabian, thank you so much for joining us here on Working and uh, sharing so much about your various processes. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It is so impressive to me that Almazan seems to be something of a renaissance man. He's a composer, but you also mentioned that he's done everything from acting to running a record label, and you ask him if he has a typical day. You are also arguably a multi-threat slash renaissance man. What about you? I think of myself more as a medieval man. I don't know, restoration <laughs> comedy man. Uh, I guess I'm a multi-threat, although part of me thinks like that's just what being a freelancer is now. You mm-hmm. have to have like 35 million jobs. And so as a result, mm-hmm. I don't really have a typical day, as I'm sure you don't really have a typical day, especially now in the middle of book promotion. So like, for example... My day today was I took my daughter to school. I got breakfast with a friend who's a critic to talk shop and we were batting around some ideas for pieces. And then literally the rest of my day is meetings in the middle of which is sandwiched this recording session. Yeah. Uh, And then somewhere in there, I have to grade my students work and I have book club tonight. So I think it's, you know, that's that's just what a, a, a typical day is like. That sounds very stressful, but I am also in a similar situation, so I can commiserate. Um, You ask Almazan about finding inspiration as well, um, and he talks about it in a very fun kind of recipe-ish way. Um, And I wanted to ask, what is your process when it comes to inspiration? What inspires you, and then how do you then use that in your work? I just feel like inspiration is really hard to describe. And Mm -hmm. so I'm very grateful to him that he was able to do it uh, and jealous that he was able to be so clear. (laughs) I'm going to be a little less clear, but I think that it's, this is actually true of everyone. I think that everyone kind of has ideas, you know, inspiration is about your subconscious processing the world around you. 
mm-hmm. and then sort of shooting, you know, catapulting ideas over the wall to your active brain, you know, <laughs> whether that's questions or whatever. And the important thing actually is to make sure that you catch those when they get flung over instead of letting them kind of go away. So I'll, I'll give you an example. If you're in the shower and a melody comes into your head, you got to keep singing it until you get a chance to dry off and get to your phone and put it in a voice memo, right? Or, you know, lots of ideas come to me while I'm walking my dog. And then you pop open the notes app and you you write it down. It might be a question and then that's going to lead to an interesting answer or it might be an argument you want to make and then you're going to want to pitch it somewhere. But like, to me, a lot of being inspired is trying to, you know, be in the world, be experiencing art, whether it's movies or paintings or whatever, listening to music, and then giving your subconscious space to kind of digest all of that. Yeah, That's what it is for me anyway. But what what about you? How do you experience it? I feel like I probably should do a better job of trying to like remember inspirations because I feel like that is a major problem for me where it's like I will have an idea at a certain moment, but because I don't write it down right then, then I'll just sort of lose it. I know. Um, it happens to me constantly. Like my dad um, used to just keep a notebook in the bathroom in case like while he was showering or like on the toilet, if he thought of something that he would immediately be able to write it down instead of like waiting until like, et cetera, et cetera. And I I wonder sometimes if I should be better about that, at least in terms of visual inspirations now, it's easier because all of our phones are also incredible cameras that I'll just like take a picture of something or screenshot it. But then the problem is forgetting where it is like in the files. If I take a million pictures after that, then it's effectively lost if I don't bookmark it in some way. Yeah, I have some notes at the bottom of my notes app that probably have the idea for the great American novel in them. (laughs) I will never know because I will never read them. And this question is a bit of a non sequitur as far as working goes, but I was curious if you are a classical music head, because I loved what Almazan had to say about, say, Brahms and the idea of absolute music. And listening to the clips of various composers he mentioned really threw me back to my competitive piano playing days. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Competitive piano playing days. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bounce this question back to you first. What were these competitions like? I really hated doing them because I think performing by myself in any respect is always really nerve wracking for me. But it was uh, like we would drive 30 minutes or an hour to wherever the competition venue was. I would play either one piece or depending on the competition, like two or three by memory and then wait around and listen to the other competitors and then see what score I got at the end, basically. Um, Yeah, it was fun. I did pretty well. uh, Oh, nice. But it, it was it always really made me nervous to do. Well, I played piano for seven years, not competitively. You probably mm-hmm. would have kicked my ass. But uh, <laughs> I played piano for seven years. The, I think the best I got at was playing uh, Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. You know, ba na 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 that song. Mm-hmm. And my parents have always been super into classical music, so they took me to the orchestra. There was like a classical music series for kids where the conductor would like explain the song and then play it. He was very charming in DC, run by this wonderful guy named Stephen Simon. And I would go to that all the time, but I never developed that kind of like classical music. I didn't become a classical music head. The thing that I was ahead about from an early age was like uh, 20th century minimalism. So Philip Glass, Steve Wright, John Adams. You know, I've always loved that stuff, and I and I yeah. love it. I love it to this day. And over the last decade, I've gotten progressively more and more interested in jazz. But I've never been great at the classical music stuff, frankly. 
To circle back to Almazan, he talks about creating a sonic portrait of the Everglades, which made me think about my interview with designer Jasmine Chong a few episodes ago, where she was saying that some of the pieces that she creates are designed to evoke places like Versailles. Um, and how much do you, as an audience member, perceive these goals when listening to Almazan's music? Because one of the things that June and I were saying in our conversation following the interview with Jasmine is, how would you know that this was the case just looking at it if you didn't have somebody telling you that that's what you should be looking for? I'm the one who did that banter conversation with you, not Oh you. my God, no! <laughs> no! Wow, um, okay. But, you know, this is the very reason why I asked him, you know, because I'm someone who makes political art and political work, but I usually have language at my disposal. I can usually like be discursive and you can't do that with instrumental music. You can't do that with clothing necessarily. Um, and so I don't think the point of that song is it's not a protest song like you listen to it and go, ah, yes, this is about the beauty and mistreatment of the Everglades, <laughs> you know, but the intent is still there no matter what. It's almost mm -hmm. like the song is a dream and then like it moves from his dream space to your dream space. That's how I kind of experience it. Like even if you don't know from the title of the song that it's about the Everglades, you're still going to get that emotional experience that is inspired by the Everglades. My, my friend Darcy James argue has this amazing song called habeas corpus for Maher Arar. And that is a song that is, it's completely instrumental. It's a jazz song written you know, the man it's dedicated to is an innocent man who was renditioned and tortured during the early days of the war on terror. And even if you've never heard the title of the song, there is a power and emotionality and pain and rage to it that is really present. And so I feel like music to me anyway, is the most emotionally powerful of all art forms. And so I think it can communicate to you on that level, even if it's not discursively telling you like this is a protest song or whatever, like mm -hmm. blowing in the wind. And to sort of ask a related question, Amazon talks about not being too prescriptive with his work and trying not to push meaning on his audience. I think that's often something that's hard to do or remember to do as an author or artist. And I'm curious if you've ever felt that way. The major struggle in some ways of everything I do as a writer <laughs> and artist is where is the space for the audience member and how big is it? I mean, mm. I just think about that question constantly, you know, with the method, f for example, it's like, well, the reader knows world war two happened. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't need to spend a lot of time on world war two, but they might not know about fifties conformity culture, you know, mm -hmm. like, like during the cold war and they really need to understand that to be able to understand the method. And, but just trying to create those spaces for the reader where they can bring their own self to it and their own knowledge and connect those dots, because it's actually like very pleasurable as a reader or an audience member when you connect the dots yourself. Right. But they have to be close enough to actually connect in a way that makes sense. And that's the tricky thing to always try to consider. Scott McCloud in reading comics talks about this thing called closure that I think mm -hmm. about a lot. He's talking about it with comics, but it's like how much work your brain has to do to connect what's going on in one panel of a comic with what's going on in the next panel. Yeah. And just thinking about um, controlling that level of closure. I think about that idea of closure all the time, no matter what medium I'm working in. Mm -hmm. That's a really smart um, point, honestly. And as you're saying, very applicable, I think, to any kind of project. 
I love the part of your conversation with Amazon about improvisation as well, because it's something that I've always personally been bad at. Um, I'd be curious to hear about your own experiences with improvisation in any context. I suck at it. I'm terrible. <laughs> I was terrible at improv as a musician. I took jazz percussion for many years in, in high school, and I was just never any good at it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I'm good off the cuff as a speaker, especially now that I've done like a ton of interviews and public appearances for the book. And as a director, you're kind of improving, you know, mm-hmm. your performance in the rehearsal room. That that stuff I'm great at. But when I have to be like in character improving or what, like I just can't get out of my head. It's just, yeah. I just keep thinking about, okay, what's going to happen next? How do I set this person up so that they can make a funny joke? Or, you know, what do I do here? Um, whereas when I don't have to worry about being anything other than myself, yeah, then I think I can do it, you know, pretty well. W- what about you? I mean, I think I'm good at public speaking or like podcasting or something like that. But I was thinking mostly in the context of when I was, more seriously like playing the piano when I was younger where I thought I was a pretty good pianist but when it came to having to improvise anything I was just horrible at it and I couldn't really get past my fear of it sounding bad which I think is sort of similar to like what we say about writing or, or any creative project where it's like you don't want to show it to anyone unless it's you think it's good or perfect in some degree and I felt that way about the music where I was like I don't know how this is going to sound because I guess my grasp on theory like wasn't strong enough or I just didn't have the confidence to really do it and I just never really got good at it I think you know it's a good reminder that regardless of your creative pursuit, like you have to do it badly to learn how to do it well. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you and I are both people who, I don't know if we're exactly perfectionists, but we, we care about being good at things. And so it can sometimes be hard for us to stomach the period of time where you have to be bad at it, whether it's a shitty first draft yeah, or absolutely. not having good drawing skills or whatever it is. And, you know, it's a thing I tell my daughter all the time, like you have to be okay with being bad at it because that's how you get good at it. And it's mm-hmm. a lesson that even in my forties, I'm still struggling to learn. Yeah. I completely agree with you there. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like How to Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Fabian Almazan and to our perfectly crumulent producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with ghostwriter and YA novelist Michelle Schusterman. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>